Hey, so far in our message series, we've been looking at the many ways an individual Christian might fail, might even sin, right? But still actually be moving forward in their spiritual journey. Hard to believe, but it's true. And today in our final message of our, our message series, Fail Forward, I'd like to look at how we might be failing or how we might fail as a body of believers, as the church, and still be moving forward in our spiritual journeys and our spiritual walk. Uh, there was a movie that came out about, oh, quite a while ago, 2004. I saw the commercials. I remember the commercials, and I remember thinking I will never go see that film because I get nightmares very easy, and it looked like the world's creepiest film. It's called The Village. And what it is, it depicts a Puritan-like 18th century village with very, very clear moral boundaries, respect, no crime, an Amish-like innocence, right? But we eventually learn that the village is actually an isolated social experiment in contemporary society. And the elders in this community, they each carried a story, how the world had hurt them, how the world had bruised them. And they decided to start over, kind of a little mini Garden of Eden, and, and raise up a, a group of kids and bring together a group of people who had not been infected by the world. They felt that they maybe, maybe this way they could you know, get around sin and evil. It could be controlled and forgotten. And the younger generation, they didn't know about the outside world, and then it helped them maintain their innocence, or, or so the elders thought. And as I read about the movie, again, I didn't see it. If you see it and, and I'm talking nonsense, just keep it to yourself. Um, because of a character's jealousy, there's an assault in the community. In what seemed to be the perfect community. Again, even though the village grew, there was little doubt about its peaceful nature. They couldn't forget about sin. It couldn't be done away with just, just like that. It, it is a permanent resident in our world. Even though they tried to keep it locked out of their community, it is a part of our world because we are human beings and we're broken. Not, we are not essentially broken human beings. Essentially, we are great. We are very good, but we got broken. And our brokenness is not our essence. Our essence is we were created in the image of God. Never forget that. And this all points to a very fundamental truth of this, this movie, The Village, and, and their expectations of, of behavior. Um, people in general, they do a very poor job of managing behavioral expectations. I don't know about you, but many of us, we tend to under-expect of ourselves, and we over-expect of others. I don't know if you're, you're like that. I, I know I am that way. If, I, if somebody does something wrong, I just think they're idiots, right? And when I do it wrong, there's always an excuse, I, right? Right? Underexpecting of ourselves is easy to understand. It's very easy to do. Why? Because we know our own intentions and our own motivations, right? They're internal to us and us alone, except maybe a good counselor. Thus, we can manipulate our intentions, right? I didn't do that or I did do that because of this or that, so I'm excused, and I underexpect of myself, and most people, right, we just like ourselves and our opinions more than others and their opinions. I mean, if we're perfectly honest, right, we all believe that we hold the correct opinions and other ones, they're all wrong. Um, and so we quickly and easily forgive ourselves. We under-expect of ourselves. But it's a whole different story for others, right? We, we, we operate on a completely different basis when it comes to other people, right? We tend to over-expect of others, Right? Because we don't know the intention and motivations of others. So when they hurt us, we assume it was intentional because people who love us don't hurt us. 
right? We, we get that in our mind. Why, well, why did you hurt me? You, you had to have done it intentionally because you love me. You wouldn't do that intentionally, and I love you. You would not do that, and we make that assumption, and it's wrong 99% of the time. They've got excuses just like we do. So we struggle to forgive others. We, we over-expect of them. And it's 10 times worse for those that we don't like or that we don't agree with. It's called giving grace at the gap. I don't know if you've heard of this phrase. It's this idea that in our lives, both with ourselves and other people, we, we, have, we have expectations for ourselves and for other people. And then what, but over here, we have what, what we can deliver and what they can deliver. So we have the expectations of what they can deliver and what they can actually deliver. And there's a gap between that expectation and that delivery, that behavior. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but people you love, people you like, right? there's, there's not a problem. You give them grace at the gap. You just give it to them. In fact, that gap can be a mile wide, and you got no problem. But people you don't like or people that you don't disagree Right? There's no gap. Their expectations must meet the behavior. The behavior must meet the expectations. No forgiveness. Right? And if they can't match the expectations, we just think, oh. Right? Horrible, 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 horrible people. See, it's only when we don't like ourselves or others, like Douglas mentioned this, that we don't give ourselves or them grace at the gap. Bottom line, we forgive and give grace to ourselves and those we like quicker and more readily than to others, simple fact, particularly others that we don't like, we don't agree with. And this is all, again, so much worse in the church, right? And I've just been talking in general. People in general do a horrible job managing expectations. But we in the church, this is particularly hard for us, right? The hurt and the pain of betrayal, we call it that. We call it betrayal, even though it might not have been intentional. They betrayed us. The hurt and pain of betrayal is even more acute in the church because when it's caused by a follower of Jesus Christ, we can easily quote the lyrics. This is a band I loved, a 2012 song, Losing by 10th Avenue North. Oh, I can't believe what he did. Oh, don't they know it's wrong? Right? That becomes our mindset as we oh, oh, point our fingers at other people. And it is. It's a hard tension that we can face as a church, showing forgiveness and love to believers who ought to know better. <laughs> That's what my mom always told me. I ought to know better. It shatters our expectations of a Christian community. When we, the church, and, I, and I, I, from here on out, I just want you to understand that everything I'm going to say from here on out is not addressed to individuals. It's, to address, it's addressed to us as a group, as the local church. Right? So everything you hear, and, I, and this will bear out in my message, in my scripture, this is, this is a message to us, not an individual. Right? Keep, kind of keep that in the back of your mind. When we, the church, fail... We, we, and when I say we, uh, Christians inside the church and, and people outside the church who do not know Christ. I mean, the whole, basically the whole world. When the church fails, the whole world becomes cynical. Right? We wonder, we, the whole world, Christians, non-Christians alike, we wonder, wonder if following Jesus really does make a difference at all. And the tendency is to despair toward the church. That's the tendency, and just, just kind of give up, give up on the church. And we retreat into a, a kind of a private, individualized piety, right? If the church is a mess, at least I'm not a mess. And I can't count on them because they mess up all the time. I, I can only count on myself. I can only 
count on myself. But Jesus doesn't leave that possibility open to us. Right? He makes that abundantly clear one day when somebody asks him, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He responds in Mark 12, verse 29, the most important one. Answer Jesus is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And verse 31, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, I want you to notice now, the two are in, intimately connected. Right? To love your neighbor is to love God, and to love God is to love your neighbor. And if you remember from the Good Samaritan, right? You're thinking you got this picture in your mind of the neighbor who helps you out and they're really lovely people. If you remember from the Good Samaritan, your neighbor is the one in need even when you don't like them. That's the tough part. That's the really, really tough part. Or they live a lifestyle that you totally disagree with. And if you, you think like if you are even friendly with them or somehow you're agreeing with them, I'm going to get to that. Jesus is preparing us to understand that in his kingdom, in the new society that he's ushering in as demonstrated and represented by the church, right, living with one's faults and differences will make all the difference in the world. If we love each other, the gap becomes very wide between expectations and behavior, and we're okay with it. Oh, that's okay. I know you had a good reason. I know you still love Jesus. It's all good. And we, we do, right? People we like. And I say represented, demonstrated by the local church, even more so than the big C church, because it's in the context of the local church that you meet your neighbors, right? I know we, we send missionaries and we, we, we pray for the entire world, but other than financially in prayer, our hands and feet don't affect a whole lot the rest of the world, but our hands and feet can make a huge difference in the lives of the people that we live around, our local community, the local church. In his letter to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the way forward will always be in the context of the local body of believers, even more so than what any individual follower of Jesus Christ can do or not do. This whole letter is all about the body. In the introduction to his book, The Message of Ephesus, Ephesians, the New Testament scholar John Stott calls Ephesians the gospel of the church. Right? In another place, he calls it the letter against a privatized gospel. Stott then makes a series of very, very provocative statements. And if you agree with them, disagree with them, I'm wrestling with it. You need to wrestle with it too. I think we all need to humbly wrestle with these statements. First statement he makes is this. We tend to proclaim individual salvation without moving on to the saved community. Understand it's not an either-or situation, right? It's a, it's a both-and. But the question, if the statement is true in John Stott's word, why don't we think more in terms of God's eternal purpose of creating through Jesus Christ a new society? This stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old creation, the old world. Right? Are we sliding toward despair of the church? Is that what people are doing as they slowly stop attending? I was told this quite a while back from my pastor. He said, every person in your congregation understand this. They're one event away from not attending anymore. COVID hit. Bam. That was the event. Should have seen it coming. Should have known. One event away from stepping away from the church. Giving up. Giving up. It's just too much work. It's just too much work. And I can be okay on my own. The entire letter to the Ephesians speaks against this. 
A few more statements, same idea. We tend to emphasize that Christ died for us to redeem us from all iniquity, a personal thing, personal sins, far more than to purify for himself a people of his own. Just think about it. I've got nothing to say about it. Just wrestle with that. Another statement, we tend to think of ourselves more as individual Christians than the gathered church in our prayer life and in, in everything we do. And then finally, this last statement, we tend to think our message is more good news of a new life than a new society. And again, it's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and. I'm not saying that individual salvation is important. We can't have a new society without saved individuals. Don't get me wrong. But we can't stop at saved individuals. God didn't leave us that possibility open. And, and, and Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he doesn't leave that possibility open to us either. It's a both-and situation. We currently, we might not be arriving fully and living fully in the both-and part of the equation. We're very comfortable with the fact that we're saved. We got our ticket. We're good to go. But now I got to work with the rest of you all. <laughs> and we struggle. And if this is true, then it's like we read the first part of the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, quickly lost interest, and never bothered to read to the end of the story to find out how it ends. Right? Literally, folks are running around with only one part of the solution. Like, if I'm just good, if I don't sin, and I'm really nice to anybody I bump into and I don't hurt them, I do no harm, boom, that's your, that's your line in the sand. I will do no harm, then I'll be good to go. I want to show you very quickly what I mean. This is a typical breakdown and outline of the letters to the Ephesians. This author broke it up into four parts. You can see how, I, how he, this wasn't me, divided up the passages. Starts with new life, but then it very, very quickly moves to a new society. And then it moves to the new standards that would be required of this new society. And then it moves to new relationships that would support the new standards that would create this new society filled with these people with new life. I mean, it's all connected. You can't stop. It's almost like in 2-1, and, and right there at the end of the new life, chapter 2, verse 10, we read this and we just stop. Here's what it says. It says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And we stop reading, not realizing that there's so much more to it than that. And if we could understand ancient Greek, we would have kept reading, right? We would have kept right on reading because we would have quickly recognized that Paul is nearly always addressing the local church and not individual Christians. In his letters to the churches, not Philemon, not Titus, not the letters to Timothy, those aren't to churches, those are to individuals, but all the rest of Paul's letters, you need to read them a little bit differently if you haven't yet figured this out. They were not addressed to individual Christians. Again, they might have blessings and greetings to some individuals. You know, at the end, he, bring my jacket for, you know, bring my books, have, have my buddy bring my stuff. Mention individuals, but it was addressed to a body. It was addressed to the local church. See, here's how we read it as speakers of modern English. For I am God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God created in advance for me to do. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with this interpretation, but Paul is not speaking here about you as the individual. It is true. Everything that, Paul, everything that I'm writing here, yes, I am, we are each individually God's handiwork, but again, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Here's the way, if you were in the original audience and you understand the ancient Greek, here's what you would have heard, assuming I'm speaking Greek. 
for all y'all are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for all y'all to do. Literally, word for word, that's the Greek. You'll love it when someone says, that's the Greek. And hearing it this way, there's no way you can stop reading. Right? It's like, okay, Paul, you better have a rabbit up your sleeve, right? Or some awfully, awfully good follow-up advice because if all we all got to get along and play nice to do what we all got to all do, not real confident, brother, because we don't get along very well. We, I can go do it alone, but as soon as you put me with somebody, we're going to get in an argument. But Paul is just supremely confident because of what Paul knows and wrote in the first three chapters of his book. Let me show you the outline again, Right? Through Jesus Christ, who died for sinners, was raised from death, right? New life. God's creating an entirely new society by way of the redeemed local body of Christ. The big idea, guys, I, here's, if we could just blow this up into one huge, huge big idea. The idea is that we would eventually, and I believe this will eventually happen, we all gather to worship on a Sunday morning, and there's nobody the streets are empty. We're not in one big giant building. We're all in different buildings. We're all worshiping one God, one spirit, one truth. And then during the week, Monday through Friday, people go back into their business and they operate on the system of forgiveness and love and mercy and grace rather than honor and shame to the point that all of our institutions, and I'm, I'm not talking just private institutions, I'm talking all institutions, are run by people who are part of a society who have decided we won't live the old way. We are going to live the new way. Even in our profit-making business, we're going to operate differently from here on out. That's the big idea, that eventually this church, local churches, would so infect the world that death and darkness would be pushed back until the entire globe has been reclaimed and redeemed. That's the big idea. And this new society will be marked by its holiness, right? A sense of God's unique calling on it, set apart for his purposes. And in our passage this morning, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, it's, it's oneness, right? So holiness and oneness. I want to, I want to look, at, look at oneness. I want to look at one aspect of oneness. Now understand, it's not a oneness that we or the world expects, and it's not a oneness that we can even deliver, what the world expects. See, if we can have unity, biblically speaking, it doesn't necessarily equal uniformity, right? We do not have to be all the same or have the same opinions. And for that reason, right, we can accept and love people without necessarily agreeing with their lifestyles. Part of the problem is the way we use the word tolerance these days. Used to mean accepting and loving someone without necessarily agreeing with their lifestyle choices. And they should never recognize that we don't agree unless the, a conversation relationally is opened up. They should never see disdain or judgmentalism or, or anything in our eyes. They should see nothing but love, right? Here's the meaning today, right? Unity is uniformity. Acceptance is agreement. So apparently being silent is agreeing with somebody and talking is agreeing with somebody. Neither of them are true. I'm just, I don't think. Part of the unity that Paul is speaking here, biblical unity, is dependent not on uniformity or acquiescence, right? But rather one of these four things, all of these four things. And we're going to be looking at the first one this morning. It depends on the charity of our character and our conduct. This is where we're going to land today. It arises from the unity of our God 
It's enriched by the diversity of our gifts, and it demands the maturity of our growth. There, there's chapter 4, verse 1 through 16 in, in a nutshell. That's your homework. Go dig into it. But this morning, I want to zero in on verses 1 and 2. 4, verse 1 says this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And what makes us worthy of the calling? Right? Is it our purity? Our individual piety? I, I, I doubt it. <laughs> just, just, just a wild guess. I, I seriously doubt it. Here, here's Paul's answer. This is what makes us worthy of our calling. Hit that next slide there. Be completely humble and gentle. It's like, wait a minute, where's the Ten Commandments? <laughs> We're, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's the way forward. And you notice it's, you can't do this alone. You can't do this alone. You're ignoring Paul's advice if you decide, I don't need to go to church. I, I can make it this week. I can, I can wing it. Paul's telling us that the key to unity will be found when we decide to bear with one another's shortcomings. And probably the better word, in some of your versions, you might have fault, and that's uh, really what he's talking about because he's addressing Greeks and Jews, excuse me, Gentiles, non-Jew, it's not that they have shortcomings. The reality is, is that they're different, right? And they see their differences as shortcomings. That's the problem. Oh, you're different. You're evil. <laughs> not necessarily. So th this is what Paul is driving at here. Our differences that we tend to perceive as shortcomings. And giving grace at the gap. So are we supposed to just put up with people, Pastor Jerry? If we just turn a blind eye, be naive about sins and truth in the church just so that we can get along, is, is that what Paul's saying here? I, I, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think Paul understands the tough reality of relationship. Giving at the grace, giving at the gap, excuse me, it means enduring a difficult behavior and then working through it. See, I know in our minds we all heard, well, I just got to endure it. I just got to endure it. I just got to bear with it. I got to bear with it. No. You can work through it. And that might be something to do with your heart. Might have something to do with their heart. But if you're in a relationship with them, two hearts can meet and have an honest discussion. I think they can. True biblical unity requires tolerance. Right at the relational level without being indifferent to the truth. See, when we're given grace at the gaps and we give grace at the gaps, along with the power and unity of the Holy Spirit, the diversity of our gifts and our growing maturity, we can fail forward. Right? We'll all be growing in maturity, spiritual maturity together. And really, that, that, that's the idea. The New Testament idea is that we can't grow in maturity by ourselves. Right? We've got to rub shoulders with each other. We've got to irritate each other. That's the only way we're going to produce any pearls. Right? You can pray, give me patience. You know what God's going to do? He's going to give you somebody who's going to drive you up the wall. That's the way you're going to acquire patience. It's not like, ah, here you go. <laughs> Merry Christmas. No. It's something that's developed in us through friction. 
Sitting alone at home with your Bible doesn't create a whole lot of friction. Right? When you start coming to, when you commit to a small group, when you commit to a Sunday school class, like oh, it's, it's easy to come to on Sunday morning, I can just listen, I can disagree, and I can walk out of here. But I want to challenge you. Participate in a small group or a, or a, or a Sunday school class. We're going to relaunch them very, in the next month or so here. I want to encourage you. That is where you are going to be rubbing shoulders. That's where iron is going to sharpen iron. This part right here, this is only the beginning. This is, this is knowledge now you got to go and say, hey, I wonder if this will work with my neighbor that I don't like. Let's see if Jerry knows what he's talking about. <laughs> go try it on, right? We can all be failing forward together. As we grow in our personal walk with Jesus, we learn to give grace to each other because we know we need grace. We need it just as bad as anybody else. Grace at the gaps. A lot of people, they don't like the church. And, and they'll say, oh, I, I love Jesus. I love God. But, and, and you know the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. It's like, ah, I love you, Jesus, but your bride? <laughs> can you imagine how he feels? But, but, but I started thinking about this, and, I, and I'm thinking, we can say that to Jesus, right? I, man, your church is a mess. Right? Yeah. It's kind of like an adolescent. I don't know if you, you remember your kids, right? At about late middle school, junior high, they got kind of gangly looking, right? They were really, really, uh, this is really rough for some of us. They were really, really cute. And then they, 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 they hit this stage where everything was growing at different rates and, right, their feet were 12 feet long and they were only five foot one. And, and then all of a sudden they grown to be beautiful adults, beautiful babies, beautiful adults. But somewhere, it's the church, <laughs> a little gangly, like limbs flying everywhere. And, and I think when we see Jesus Christ and when we talk with Jesus Christ in our prayer, we're like, like God, you're, your church is a mess. It's like, it's like when I was in sixth grade. It was horrible. And I get the impression that Christ says, you know what, I, I understand, I get it. I'm not blind. <laughs> but you just wait. My Holy Spirit is doing something. And people are being changed. And they're seeing themselves as part of something much greater than themselves. You just wait. Because my bride will be beautiful. My bride will be without blemish. But it's only when we forgive each other that we remove those blemishes. By the power of his spirit, we give grace at the gaps. Because we desperately need grace at the gaps. We don't need to despair of the local church. And retreating into a privatized individual piety isn't the answer either. I want to challenge you if you're struggling in your walk, if you're challenged, participate in the body. This was part of his solution. It wasn't just your individual faith. But this group here, this is part of his solution. And you need to decide, I will rub shoulders more often with these people. These are my people. This is the local church. God is calling me to make a difference in this community. I can't do it alone. I need these people, but I need to understand them. I need to understand their foibles. I need to understand their strengths and their weaknesses, and they need to understand my strengths and weaknesses. I need to accept it. And if there's a whole mess of weaknesses, we all need to work through it together with love and mercy and forgiveness, sacrificial love and forgiveness. Don't despair. 
You look at the world and you just think, wow, we have a task and it just keeps getting harder every day. That's not a problem, don't worry. Be enthusiastically optimistic, right? Because God is changing lives and those lives are gathering together and they're stepping into their communities and they're making a huge difference in the lives of people who don't yet know Jesus.